2: One must believe neither the people of the palace, who ordinarily measure the power of the king by the shape of his crown, which, being round, has no end, nor those who, in the excess of a discreet zeal, proclaim themselves openly as partisans of Rome. Cardinal Richelieu Cardinal Mazarin, the First Minister of France, approached the beginning months of 1644 with caution, concern, and a consideration for events occurring in Scandinavia that had dragged their major ally Sweden into making war on Denmark. Mazarin knew that France's position was not militarily strong at the beginning of that year. France had troops stationed in numerous strategic points, in Catalonia, the South Netherlands border, along the Rhine, watching the Pyrenees in North Italy, but the fact that the soldiers existed there did not necessarily mean that the state supplying them was enjoying prosperity. Mazarin knew his country was stretched, that the war had taken its toll on the French finances and that war in this form could not be endured by France much longer. He was reliant on Sweden to pick up the slack in Northern Europe, and ensure that France did not have to face both the Austrian Habsburgs and the Spanish Habsburgs alone. When the Swedish Council and Sweden's Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna made the decision to declare a preemptive war against Sweden's eternal Baltic rival Denmark though, the race was on in the Habsburg camp to first support their new ally by default, and then to use the combined forces of the two Habsburg branches to crush the French across Europe. That was the story of 1644, and we'll cover it in some more detail here, because it is important for setting in concrete the events that followed. 1645 will then see Sweden by France's side, and the negotiations at Munster and Osnabrück entering their own critical phases. All the while, you're likely to notice the pattern emerge that demands will be changed with the change in military fortunes, and that a state who believes he's on the up will try to talk the talk at the same time. This episode will try to introduce to you the meaty aspects of Westphalian diplomacy, as well as some of its key concepts, and how these states sought to try and end the war and why. Though we only focus on 1644 and 1645 for this double episode batch, I promise there's no shortage of details, anecdotes and juicy diplomacy that would make a fellow history friend very happy. So let's begin. In the last episode, I introduced the book, Peacemaking in Early Modern Europe, by Derek Croxton. Derek's book covers in immense, sprawling detail, not only the negotiations that led up to the Treaty of Westphalia, but also the intricate details that led the states in question to consider peace in the first place. Europe by 1644 was universally longing for peace, of that there was no question. Though new campaigns launched by Denmark gave the Emperor hope, this hope revolved around the possibility that Danish victories would grant Habsburgs better leverage at the negotiating table, and that the peace would be more favourable. The ideas professed by Ferdinand II, our current Emperor Ferdinand III's father, which revolved around, some believe, centralising the Holy Roman Empire and universalizing its religious makeup, were by 1644 absent the Habsburgs were not going to win a resounding victory. That much was clear. It was at this stage all about survival, and any plans Ferdinand or his allies in Spain, Bavaria or otherwise had looked at viewed any opportunity as a means to bring their enemies to the negotiating table more easily. The major issue was though, all sides believed that despite their hardships, peace at any price would not do. There had to be some form of concessions. There had to be a card of some kind that could be looked to. There had to be leverage. Even after almost three decades of war, Europe had not yet reached the stage where peace and significant compromise went hand in hand. Such an epiphany would only come to either side if significant military defeats or the further worsening of the social, economic and military situation occurred. This will be reflected upon heavily in the events we cover. Often, when one demands things from their allies, they now do so with the goal of campaigning while negotiating from a hopefully stronger position in the two cities. In reference to that last point, and as an example of how many shorthand references I'll be using in this episode, when I mention the two cities, unless I state otherwise, I'm referring to Osnabrück and Munster, the two cities where Sweden and France, respectively, had their main state representatives and diplomats present. The fight-while-negotiate strategy is also reflected heavily in the literature I've encountered, and Derek Croxton's book is no exception. He covers events from the perspective of Cardinal Mazarin, though that's not to say his perspective is entirely French. It is likely, though, that the perspective of this episode will be, because I find it easier to focus from one angle and introduce the events through their lens, a bit like how I did the World War I special mostly through the eyes of Germany. Some people like this focus, though I understand others prefer the kind of broad narrative. I'll be honest, I actually prefer the latter, but I'd like to think that by approaching it in this format, you'll hopefully discover, as I did, that the info is far easier to digest when examining it from someone's point of view. Another important thing Croxton does is introduce us to the two French reps at Munster who would prove central to the peace process, Abel Servien and Claude de Quote, A pessimistic January letter giving further instructions to Servienne and Davao reflected the poor French position. It noted that France wanted peace, but that many experts considered it impossible because of the complex issues involved. Moreover, the Dutch, with whom Servienne and Davao were negotiating a renewed alliance with before going to Munster, did not want peace, and France could not go against their wishes. Anne, the French queen and regent for her son Louis XIV, was therefore ready to consent to a truce." It may seem surprising to us, knowing that France was among the victorious party at Westphalia, to see French consensus leaning towards the idea of a truce, but such was the state of France in early 1644 that such an option appeared preferable to the expected Habsburg onslaught due for the remainder of 1644. The French entry to the war in 1635 had been a shaky one. Indeed, for a few years a general French collapse appeared imminent, but small French victories along the Rhine, coupled with pressure on the South Netherlands, interference in Catalonia, which had proved especially effective, and most recently, the decisive victory at Rocroi, roy appeared to suggest a general French trend towards victory. Yet the people had had enough. France suffered from the same social problems of unrest, unpopular taxes and government, and general dissatisfaction as everyone else. Her lands may not have been ravaged as other German states had been, but the war felt taxing enough nonetheless. To the average French citizen, tired of taxes, levying of soldiers, increased banditry and peasant unrest. The French military efforts seemed more like a relentless exercise of exhaustively chipping away at Habsburg positions of strength only for new ones to emerge and the old ones to heal while these new ones were focused on. It had taken a toll on their patience so that any reservoirs of goodwill that the French citizen may have possessed, through whatever level of understanding may have filtered down to them of the general geopolitical situation, were largely expended by 1644. Yet Mazarin and the French government knew that in order to put their strategic plans into place, withdrawal from the war remained impossible, despite the friction this would cause with the French populace. I'm going to go back to Mazarin and the French in a sec, but first I want to look at a term which we'll be encountering heavily over the coming episode and the next, so it's important I explain it to you properly, and that we get exactly what it means. Plenipotentiary. You may have heard that word before and not exactly have been sure what it means. Does it mean envoy? Is it a fancy word for diplomat? What do they do? Plenipotentiaries, let's call them plenies because it looks friendlier and is easier to say, are usually tasked with representing a government in some form, such as at a conference. However, the issue of how much power the plenies have can vary. Though the word plenipotentiary means full powers, from the Latin plenus meaning full and potens meaning power, Plennies, such as those who sat at the conferences were covering in Munster and Osnabrück, sometimes were not fully vested with these powers. As we'll see, what the Plennies were allowed to do varied depending on the country in question. So for example, initially the French Plennies weren't allowed to negotiate alone with the Habsburgs, they could only negotiate when other French allies were present. On top of this fact was the question of how much power a state's Plennies really had in the issue of negotiating. Could they make every decision at once? Or did they have to periodically refer back home to their government? Or did they only have to phone home over really big issues? If it sounds technical, then that's because it was. The plenies from various states were effectively swimming in their own technicalities when the conferences began. And this fact was often taken advantage of when one wanted to stall for time. Oh, it's not my fault, you could claim. My government hasn't vested me with full powers to negotiate with you. I am merely a plenipotentiary. Such an excuse made sense when the correspondence between the government and their planes could take some time due to the communication issues present in the era. As technology progressed, the issue of full powers became less pronounced, because such a status could be confirmed on the fly. Additionally, while diplomats or ambassadors were normally only reserved for the larger states, so French diplomats in England for example, there was rarely the kind of full-blown envoys present in smaller states. Before Equality of Nations existed, bigger states had permanent diplomatic reps in other bigger states, and when it came to smaller states, a rep would be sent if needed. In this time period you would normally be informed beforehand whether or not you possessed full powers, to save you the trouble of asking your government via post once you reached the area in question, which would delay everything and make you look a little silly. However, the plenies that were sent to the two cities often varied in their powers individually, or their powers had to be varied as time went on, because their home states would uphold that instantly granting full powers may infer that you were desperate for peace, therefore you were the weaker power, and that by granting full powers to Plenys before they left, gave the home government no chance to discuss the issues raised in the Conferences, since the Plenys could instantly pass judgement on them and move on to the next issue. It was a complex system, and one which seems strange in the highly connected world of today, where Plennies can simply get their government on Skype, if they wish to, and negotiate the nature of their powers on the fly. Another example then, where technology fundamentally changed the nature of diplomacy. We're going to do our best, and try not to get bogged down in the details and technicalities of the Plennies but now at least you'll hopefully understand what I mean when I refer to plenies and their problems. Derek Croxton gives a good analysis of the strategy used by Ferdinand III's plenies. I remember Ferdinand III claimed that his plenies spoke for every German state, even if they are referred to as the imperial plenipotentiaries. Saxony didn't have its own plenies, neither did Bavaria, and so on. While Ferdinand grappled with the issue that many German states wanted their own plenies to represent their own states, he was also attempting to stall for time in Munster when he learned of the Danish war and hoped more leverage could be obtained if the war lasted for a while longer. Ferdinand stalled for time by using the mess of technicalities that his side produced, as Croxton notes. The Emperor was chiefly to blame for the delays. He was elated at the Swedish invasion of Denmark, which gave him a new de facto ally. Hoping to court Denmark into a full alliance, the Emperor tried to avoid entering into substantial negotiations as long as Christian IV was not represented at the Conference in Osnabrück. In Osnabrück, the Imperial plenipotentiaries refused to begin talks with Sweden on the grounds that there was no mediator. The Danes having been being excluded by virtue of their war with Sweden. In Munster, they seized on alleged defects in the powers delegated to French plenipotentiaries as a delaying tactic. Their main complaint was that the prologue to the French powers blamed the Emperor exclusively for the war. They also objected that the French powers only allowed them to negotiate with their allies, and that the powers were signed by the minor king, not his regent mother or any members of council. The French met these criticisms with some of their own. They argued that the imperial powers spoke only of negotiating peace, but not peace itself. They were also particularly concerned that the imperial powers said nothing about the right to conclude with France's allies. The French raised similar objections over Spanish powers." Quote. Another issue we have to come to grips with is the idea of security where the dissemination of information is concerned. How could the French court, for example, guarantee that when they sent letters of arrived at decisions which detailed their stance on a certain subject, such as the issue of Alsace, for example, that during the time it took to make the decision, develop the letter, send it, for it to reach the French plenies, for these plenies to digest it, and then adopt it into the negotiating strategy, that some spy would not discover its contents and inform their masters?' If one's enemy knows the truth about an issue, or how much he is willing to give, then it doesn't matter how tough that state appears or what that state says. When it comes down to it, your enemy knows how much you're willing to give in reality, and they won't settle for less. This is addressed by Croxton too. The problem of secure negotiations was central, because of its influence, on French negotiating tactics. Naturally, if one's enemy knows what one is willing to concede, he will not settle for less. The French plenipotentiaries therefore often pretended to be discussing a point without having the authority to concede it, saying that they would write back to court and see if it were possible." Quote. But pretending only worked if your opposite number didn't know what your true orders were. Furthermore, you could call your enemies bluff and claimed that they had been granted the powers to make more concessions that they were letting on, and that they should just give in to the extent that they were permitted to rather than just being sneaky, lying to everyone and trying to be awkward for the sake of some extra gain. The best way to call your enemies bluff was to be aware of their policies though. European states all had goals on certain issues that they felt very strongly on and those at the conferences within the two cities that understood these issues and were well informed about the other state policy in general, often were able to make accurate educated guesses as to how far they were willing to go, and to see through what they said to what they could actually give. This fact led the French to prefer to wait for Habsburg plenys to propose issues that they could then react to. They made this decision because first, it made them look more powerful when there didn't appear to be a pressing need to suggest items, and second, because by suggesting issues it proved that the French were willing to discuss them in the first place. And thus, they were open to interpretation or exploitation. Catalonia, for example, though a problematic revolt for Spain, was an issue for France because the situation there obviously was untenable. France was merely using the region to weaken Spain but French plenies couldn't very well state that, and then expect the independent-minded Catalans to support them thereafter. There were many other examples of double standards, and the bad press that might emerge if it was revealed that, say, France was willing to trade the South Netherlands for Catalonia, would be hazardous for both France and Spain, and so both often had to guard from the other what they actually wanted. These points and examples are all to explain why the negotiations took so long. In spring 1644, Torstenson, as commander of the Swedes in Denmark, was rampaging up the Jutland Peninsula. Yet, even though such a positively ran campaign was theoretically beneficial to the French, French statesmen, and Mazarin in particular, were anxious for the Swedes to refocus their attention back to Europe, and nervous about the Swedish engagements there in general. This even extended to Munster, where French plenies made their diplomatic base, and the urgency that accompanied the French negotiations because French concerns abounded about the Habsburg invasion that would never really materialise. Mazarin's concern led him to threaten numerous times that he would extricate his plenies from the conference in Munster if concrete negotiations did not get underway and if the Habsburgs did not stop swooning at the Danish invasion and actually grant their own plenies some actual power to negotiate with them. This is examined by Croxton. in mid-June, Mazarin became so frustrated with the failure of either branch of the Habsburgs to produce adequate delegated powers, that he told his own representatives that it would be worthwhile to threaten to withdraw from the conference. This was elevated to an order in his letter of the 17th of July, 1644. It must be emphasized that this threat was intended to remain simply a threat. Mazarin was not looking for an excuse to break off talks, but wanted to use the threat of breaking them off to produce movement in the negotiations. End quote. Claiming that you're far too busy to put up with a series of false starts and the use of technicalities as an excuse for inaction, and that you just don't need this crap, and that you're going to go home, thank you very much, would give your enemy the impression that they need to get serious or the time for negotiation would pass. Of course, this worked best if France had a strong military position to back this up, and France didn't really have that in the summer of 1644. The Mazarin was developing a plan that would hopefully ensure that they soon would. The Swedish position in mid 1644 on the other hand was one of confidence. While their plenies sat in Osnabrück, their general Torstensen ripped up the Jutland Peninsula. And when Gallus was sent to formalise Habsburg commitments to its new Danish ally with an army 20,000 men strong, Torstensen outmaneuvered and defeated it over the space of a few weeks the Habsburgs' confusion in Denmark had come as a result of its sudden vulnerability in the rear to its new Transylvanian enemy, who had been negotiated by Franco-Swedish reps to enter into the war as a sort of insurance policy against the Habsburgs. Whereas Axel Oxenstierna had thought of the possibility of imperial reinforcements being sent to attack Torstensen in the rear, Ferdinand had obviously not considered the possibility that his former enemy, Transylvania, and its new ruler, George Rakokshi, would attack him in the rear. Because of this coup, Gallus had to turn around, which was bad enough, but he now also had to run away from Torstensen, which was very bad, through barren and previously destroyed German territory, which was very, very bad. Having intended to campaign against only Torstensen, Gallus had not packed adequate supplies for a journey into Denmark and then all the way back down south again. So when he did pass through these German lands, his men began dropping like flies from starvation, and by the time they made it into Bohemia, with 10% of their original force remaining, the actual Transylvanian threat to Ferdinand had in fact passed, with George signing a treaty in December 1644 to take him out of the war, and signing a truce in October before that. It meant that Gallus had marched all the way back for nothing but it also meant that Torstensson now had no enemy to worry about. And that once he forced a truce agreement out of Christian IV of Denmark, which he did in November, he was able to follow Gallus' forces all the way back through the same lands he had marched countless times before. The news of the Swedish successes brought great relief to Mazarin in particular, because he had for so long feared a Habsburg campaign in numerous directions, akin to 1636. However, the Habsburgs were nowhere near capable of launching such a coordinated strategy in 1644. Spain was struggling and clearly on the defensive against French moves in France Comté and Catalonia, while it remained stuck in the Netherlands without the chance of resupply. Ferdinand III, meanwhile, may have been able to coordinate with Maximilian of Bavaria had he not sent Gallus' 20,000 strong force towards the Swedes anyway. In short, the Habsburgs had bungled their one chance to double-team France, so much so, that only Bavaria would actually pose a genuine, fresh threat to the French position along the Rhine. The story of the Rhine frontier in 1644 is one of constant back and forth fighting between France and Bavaria. The latter of which seemed like pretty much the only effective party still in the Habsburg camp, once Gallus's forces evaporated so rapidly in the face of the Swedish force. In the background of these campaigns is the familiar Franco-Bavarian diplomacy that sought to pull Maximilian of Bavaria away from Ferdinand III. The Bavarian goal on the other hand was to cause enough trouble for France to acquire better terms for its forces, and at times it would even seem like Max was playing his own game, regardless of the Emperor and the Empire, which of course would be so unlike him. Like I alluded to before though, these were not the campaigning years of 1630. The goal was still victory of course, but now it was victory through negotiations at the two cities. The Habsburgs were playing an increasingly losing game along the Rhine, but so long as they kept the French at bay, it didn't send the ball too far in France's court when it came to actual negotiations in the two cities. The idea was to see who would break first. Would France, with its strange...
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
2: Domestic pressures and tired, extended armies, or would Bavaria, fearful of total defeat and the relentless pillaging of its own lands? Whoever cracked first would thus be more inclined to give away during negotiations. So you see what the two were after. To begin, the campaigning of 1644 along the Rhine. Matzerin was informed that the Bavarian Generalissimo, Franz von Mercy, of Tuttlingen fame, had been spotted with his army near the town of Freiburg, and by the 26th of June, he was besieging it with well-rested, well-fed and well-equipped troops, fresh from their experience at Tuttlingen. When the French Rhine commander, Turenne, who had taken over from the previous December after the disaster at Tuttlingen, noted that the Bavarians so superseded the French on these grounds, i.e. rest, food and equipment, He appealed to Mazarin for aid, but no aid came. Having hoped for reinforcement by French allies, mainly the Hessians, and from the hopefully new ally Charles, Duke of Lorraine, Mazarin realized too late that due to the former's own problems and the latter's refusal to sign anything concrete with France, France would be on its own. Only by the 20th of July did Mazarin actually inform Turenne that the negotiations with France's potential allies had failed, and so Louis, Prince of Condé, with his reinforcements would be late. Mazarin was adamant that Freiburg be held, but on the 28th of July it fell, and by then French reinforcements under Louis, Prince of Condé, were still on the other side of the Rhine. It wouldn't be until the 31st of July that he could join Turenne, and the two armies could jointly plan their next move. Initially, though, neither Turenne nor Condé could decide the next move. Mercy had established a strong position for himself near Freiburg, far up the mountains, in a fortified position, where he could march down from if Freiburg was taken by the French. So instead of taking it, the French commanders elected that it would simply be better to launch themselves at the Bavarian positions. Their attacks on the 3rd and 5th of August 1644 almost broke through. But the war of attrition took its terrible toll, since as many as 7,500 losses were endured on both sides. For Mercy, his position became untenable because he had eaten the countryside bare, and yet he didn't have enough cavalry to make either a decisive attack or a quick escape. However, the French couldn't decisively defeat Mercy, nor could they capitalise on what Mazarin believed was a victory more damaging than it actually was. It was in reality a draw. Because the French could not shift mercy and mercy could not attack them in force. Mazarin appears to have taken mercy's failure to attack as a sign of weakness, urging Turin to use the victory well and not to lose its fruit. Yet, whatever fruit Mazarin expected to gain was minimal. Mazarin was under pressure at home to show something positive to the French people, and Freiburg's recapture could have been that carrot but Turenne believed sending the resources on retaking the town was unnecessary because, without Brice whose loss to the French we covered in the previous episode, or the Bavarian army, which Mercy had evacuated, the Bavarian occupation of the town of Freiburg itself could not sustain itself. With this in mind then, where did Turenne think the next French attack should focus? A key goal of Mazarin had been to quarter troops across the Rhine for the winter so that it would seem as though they were there to stay, and the moral impact in France would be felt. To solidify this possibility, Turenne reckoned that a significant fortress would have to be captured. He looked at Philipsburg, which was further north along the Rhine, and which would have been about in the middle of France's modern-day eastern border with Germany. The siege began on the 25th of August, and would end successfully on the 9th of September. Derek Croxton notes the basis behind the decision to take Philipsburg. Quote, though attacking Philipsburg was not the only option the court considered, neither was it a mere opportunistic reaction to the situation. Plans for capturing Philipsburg and towns in Lower Palatinate went back to at least 1642, when Gabriel had commanded the army of Germany. But that was not all, Turenne had proposed this plan anew on the 29th of February 1644, and had received approval just two days prior to the battles at Freiburg. In fact, in the court's decision to send the Prince of Condé to join Turenne, one of Mazarin's major reasons for supporting it was his belief that, after the battle had been won, Condé and Turenne could turn northwards and conquer the Palatinate." But Mercy had been given a bloody nose, he had not been significantly defeated, and he would be able to fight another day once he was reinforced with cavalry. Yet, the French High Command was right about the Bavarian inability to prevent Philipsburg's fall. Shipping other units from Brysac, from other Alsace fortresses, and from Flanders down the Rhine, Philipsburg was besieged by the 24th of August. Maximilian of Bavaria had in fact expected French forces to simply march straight to the Palatinate, since the French goal of conquering the Palatinate and using it as a base was well known. Due to the combined factors of the incompetence of the Imperial commander at Philipsburg, and Max's own focus on Heilbronn, which was a little further east and across another river, the Necker, the Rhine's major tributary, Philipsburg fell on the 9th of September. The French immediately set about refurbishing its surprisingly outdated defences. What preparations were made to move next on Mainz, a key electoral city power in its own right? Mainz welcomed the French in on the 16th of September, and it was viewed as a doubly huge coup for France, since the commander there had not resisted and instead welcomed the French in, perhaps reflecting the mood of the Lesser Princes in the region, that the tide was now moving in favour of the French. Mercy did manage to take Fort Syme to the south of Philipsburg, and then reached to the north to capture Mannheim, effectively surrounding Philipsburg with a series of Bavarian fortress towns. Though we hadn't got the means to take Philipsburg itself. However, Philipsburg was the key to the general region, in case you didn't know, and because Mercy couldn't take it, the French were able to retreat in an orderly fashion back into it when Mercy retook those Rhine fortress towns. It seemed as though, in other words, that the Bavarians weren't going down without a dogged fight, but they were slowly going down. Mazarin was having just as hard a time of it though, as reinforcements were slow in coming, and then far smaller than their numbers actually advertised. A move on Frankfurt, which would really have been something, collapsed due to the failures of French supply and want of guns so that by early November, Mazarin authorized Turenne to retreat back over the Rhine and quarter yet again in France. The French then, by the end of 1644, had still not established a permanent presence in Germany, but they had given the Bavarians a run for their money, and the forts they did capture looked out across the plain towards future conquests. Mazarin had additional reason to be positive. Torstensen had just signed the truce with the Danes, and he was now back in the empire. Torstensen's plan is outlined by Croxton, and is a good example again of how Plenies were used. Note in this extract the way Torstenson asked the French plenipotentiaries questions as though he was talking to the French government. The French Plenies were able to reply in this case, because they had been granted full powers to negotiate with foreign powers. Quote, the Swedish army had finally returned to the Empire, a truce having been concluded with Denmark in November, and Torstensen had a bold plan. Having defeated the imperial general Gallus and ruined his army, Torstensen proposed to continue the campaign into the winter to press the Imperials while he had the advantage. In December he requested from the French plenipotentiaries advance payment of the winter subsidy, the loan of Hessian troops, and the promise of a diversion from Turenne should the Bavarians move to aid the imperial army. The plenipotentiaries approved this plan so fully that they not only wrote in strong terms to the court supporting it, they even borrowed 100,000 Reichsthalers on their own credit to give it to Torstenson right away. Turenne enthusiastically went to support his ally by launching an attack across the Rhine in late December. And French forces did capture Kruznach further up the Rhine. The fact stood at the end of 1644 that France maintained a presence along the crucial river. They were stronger than they had been the year before despite the Swedish absence. Now that the Swedes were back, it suggested a return to the successful tag team. The Bavarians had proven that they were down and not out, but Mazarin had proven his ability to improvise on the fly. The Palatinate was almost totally his, the critical Rhine fortress of Philipsburg was in French hands, and France now had an effective doorway into the HRE. Max of Bavaria was certain that they would try to pass through it in the beginning of 1645. The faithful Derek Croxton illustrates the good progress France had made almost despite itself in 1644, and makes an interesting reference to Spanish powers at the same time. Spanish powers, as mentioned here, is another diplomatic reference that alluded to Spanish plenipotentiaries and their powers to deal with whomever they pleased. If you remember from earlier on, French Plenies upheld the diplomatic rights of their allies and their own, which meant that France never negotiated alone, and that Ferdinand's Plenies could never request, for example, a lone meeting with French Plenies. The acquiescence to Spanish powers, then, meant that Spanish Plenies could do this. The reason for the acquiescence is harder to explain, but probably revolves around the fact that the French government did not decide this. It was instead a tactic used by the French plenipotentiaries in Munster to get the ball rolling and perhaps lull the Spanish plenies into a false sense of security at the same time. It is a good example of the use of plenies during negotiations. Though, had the French government been directly contacted, the issue of French pride would probably have caused stalling of the issue, which, though it meant little in material sense, held symbolic value. The French plenies were taking the initiative and hoping that they could accelerate the negotiations, and their discussions and decisions over this individual issue were delivered far faster than, say, a Franco-Spanish meeting would have. Additionally, since it was in Munster, a level of secrecy unavailable in the internationally observed court policies was applied, especially if the French court wished it to be so. Bribery was remarkably effective at silencing individuals who thought they knew about certain developments occurring in Munster that concerned French pride and honour, wink wink, nudge nudge. Failing all that, the French government could simply blame their plenies for conceding to the Spanish requests for full powers and distancing themselves from the decisions made there. If you think that's a lot of words to say on the issue of Spanish powers, then you're probably right. The whole concept didn't really mean anything practically the realistic plenipotentiary would have known that if they really wanted to talk to their rival plenies in private, then they could make it so. The issue was, though, like so many other seemingly unimportant questions raised at these conferences, that whoever bended to the requests first would made out as the weaker party, even if these concessions barely amounted, like in this case, to concessions at all. It was the effect psychologically of saying, yes, you can have what you want, rather than what the plenies in question actually wanted in the first place. That was the key issue. It suggested strength if you got what you wanted, with the result that often ridiculous spats were initiated over the tiniest of technicalities, with the go-between-both-sides-plenies that when one side gave in due to boredom or because of the stupid nature of the argument, the other could claim a victory. I hope that explains things a bit better, and we'll get back to Croxton now. Quote, The question of Spanish powers ended in a Spanish victory though this point was raised and settled entirely in Munster, without orders from the French court. Otherwise, the French negotiating position hadn't changed hardly at all in the year, though admittedly there was little to alter. The admission of the German estates, which was the key goal to Swedish and French participation in the conference, remained unsolved by the end of the year. Mazarin was not going to concede on this issue, and he had no reason to given his military success. The first months of 1645 would demonstrate that his patience had borne fruit. End quote. Abel Servian, remember one of the French plenipotentiaries, while in Munster in winter 1644, made a strange proposal to the French court back in Paris. Instead of capitalizing on French successes and their clear cumulative strength when combined with the threat posed by the Swedes, Servian wanted to demonstrate France's commitment to general German liberties instead. He disingenuously proposed a total French evacuation of the HRE, including lands along the Rhine that had been recently occupied at great expense, in return for Ferdinand's promise to restore the HRE back to the status quo of 1618. Servian believed that this would grant France a propaganda coup, since it would show that France was not fighting for itself, but German liberty. And because there was no way that Ferdinand would or could agree, if you remember, even turning back the clock to 1627 was a serious struggle, France would simply come out of the whole thing looking like a selfless German saviour, who, while perhaps a bit naive, could not be accused of having anything but the best German interests at heart. However, Mazarin immediately rejected the proposal on the simple grounds that France did want territorial gain after what it had expended. Additionally though, Mazarin was also concerned that it would turn Maximilian of Bavaria squarely against any ideas of negotiation with France, since this status quo of 1618 would by default take the Palatinate off him, and this would upset the planned strategy of Mazarin to detach Bavaria from the Habsburgs. On top of all this, it would upset the Swedes who wanted territorial compensation for their actions. And there was also the concern that Ferdinand might call the French bluff and accept. Even if he did for a little while, it would dramatically flummox the French plenipotentiaries in the two cities, who would thus have to propose ways of putting plans into practice that they never really wanted to utilise in the first place. Mazarin's reply, containing all these above objections, was sent in a letter to Servian in Munster, and, as Croxton notes, quote, This letter should end doubt, if any existed, that Mazarin was fighting this war for reasons other than those of power politics. He was interested in German liberties, but only insofar as they weakened Habsburg power, and he was not interested in fighting a war that did not include territorial gain for France. End quote. Able Servian was thus told to be quiet, but the French proposals into the new year of 1645 continued to focus on the issue of German estates, or of other princes being present at the negotiations. In addition, the French plenies there, and those of Sweden who sat at Osnabrück, were criticised because they were believed to be using this demand as a way of stalling for time. It seemed the more desperate a situation for one side became militarily, the more venomous the accusations of stalling from that side towards the other became. They didn't want to lose any more than they already had, and thus they wanted to negotiate ASAP. Habsburg plenies could also argue that many circular letters had already been sent out to the German princes, yet none had arrived, or at least those that did were security French allies. Why did France care so much about the issue of other German princes joining in the negotiations? Well, it would weaken the Emperor and his claims to represent the Roman Empire as a whole, that was the key reason, but others included concerns about future security. The need to keep the Empire decentralised so that France would not fear its unified mobilisation, and the support that would be gained by having individual princes on side at Munster. France had a far greater chance to get what it wanted if the Emperor's plenies were not the sole representatives of the Empire since it was almost definite that they alone would never give France territorial compensation, but minor German princes might. If those minor German princes felt obliged because of their newfound position to side with the French, and the idea went that they would, then French interests were easier to guarantee. Weakening the Habsburgs was a paramount concern of Mazarin's though. It was why he had endured negotiating with Maximilian of Bavaria for so long in the past. If Max could be persuaded to send his own plenies, then that would also violate the Emperor's claim to speak for all of the Empire as a whole. Max's violation might persuade other princes to follow suit, so it was important they began with pressuring him. However, Max was remarkably difficult to detach from Ferdinand even despite his previous flip-flopping and apparent willingness to treat with France. Francis Sweden tried to persuade Max to approve of plans to welcome in the individual princes of the HRE, rather than just accept Ferdinand's plenipotentiaries as the sole German voice. This is examined by Croxton, who rationalises Max's decision to refrain from sending plenies of his own to Munster. It may seem that Maximilian would also have wished to limit the Emperor's authority in this way. After all, it would have given a chance for Bavaria to send plenipotentiaries to Munster. But Bavaria was in a privileged position. In the first place, it had been elevated to the Electoral College, and the electors preferred to limit the participation of other princes and estates so as to strengthen their own influence with the Emperor. Moreover, Maximilian himself had by far the most influence with the emperor by virtue of their family ties and close cooperation since 1618. The French plenipotentiaries referred to him as the soul of the emperor's council. This may be an exaggeration, but there is no doubt that Maximilian and the emperor worked closely together, and the emperor could scarcely afford to take a major diplomatic step without Bavarian approval. Maximilian therefore saw cooperation with the Emperor as the best way to achieve his goals, and took a hard line against the German estates and princes being able to send plenipotentiaries of, of their own to the conference. End quote. These negotiations, taking place in early 1644, but going nowhere, was the moment that Franco-Swedish plenipotentiaries decided that the best course would be to simply skip the negotiations for their entry and instead just invite all the princes of the empire to come to the two cities and negotiate in person, or nominate their own plenipotentiaries to do so. It was a bold move to bypass Ferdinand's laws and attempt to deal with the princes directly, hopefully establishing a pro-German base in the process. However, the German princes were very slow in responding to the French requests, and most did not respond at all, meaning that the French were left looking a little bit clueless. This same letter was sent out across Germany again, but Maturin appears to have misunderstood the situation. Croxton examines the events of spring 1644. Quote, the letter was sent out on the 6th of April, but the estates responded only very slowly. No one had arrived by the 12th of May, and Avo wrote a concerned letter to Mazarin saying that the princes were weaker than he had imagined, and hence unwilling to send representatives against the Emperor's express will. He hoped they could be persuaded to come to the conference by the upcoming campaign. Part of the problem may have been the tone used in the letter. Davo and Servienne did not shrink from calling the Emperor a tyrant, for which they were rebuked by Mazarin. Many Germans may have wished to see the Emperor's power limited, but they still looked on him as their sovereign." We of course know now that because the results of the French campaign of 1644 were relatively unspectacular, the German prince's response would remain anemic. That extract showed another example of the danger Pliny's composed too, though. Mazarin, though he was unhappy with the letter's contents, particularly about the Emperor being referred to as a tyrant he was only informed of its contents after it was sent. The French Plenies, acting with the authority vested in them by the French government, did not have to defer to that government while they drafted the original letter. And once it was sent, Matzarin may not have liked it, but he was unable to do anything about it, since the French Plenies had never been obliged to consult him during that letter's construction. There was also a degree of scare tactics being used by the imperialists against these German princes as they sought to tar the French name, though the effects of this appeared minimal when the reliable Hess sent its plenies to Munster on the 15th of June. By doing this, Hess was technically breaking the terms of the agreement Ferdinand had developed at Regensburg. Though since Hess was essentially the pariah of the Holy Roman Empire, owing to its French and Swedish alliances, it had never been present at Regensburg 1640-41 in the first place. The agreements made at Regensburg, it was clear, had not represented the consensus of the whole empire. The Dukes of Brunswick arrived on the 15th of July, 1644, and it was rumoured that the Hans towns, Frankfurt and Lower Saxony were expected to follow. This was well below French expectations though, so to save face, they claimed it was the fault of the postal service, and sent the letter again on the 6th of August. And we're going to leave it there for now, history friend. I know it's kind of a cliffhanger, but if you check the feed slash your device, then you've hopefully got the other part of this episode batch there with you. There's just so much going on that I figured putting smaller side ones together was necessary. And those of you that bombard me about the length and seem simultaneously unable to find your pause button can now be happy too. Everyone wins! Seriously though, I hope you'll join me in the next episode, and that this one hasn't proved too taxing slash boring. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the 30 Years War, episode 25.92, Making Westphalia, part 1. Thanks!